Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. Malcolm X said, you can't have capitalism without racism. Why? And what can we learn from that? Heroic Black Lives Matter protests have swept the US, Britain and the world. Rivers of working class young people, black, white and Asian, have taken up the struggle against racism and police violence. Sadly, police murder of black people is nothing new. Why has this movement exploded in this way right now? And why do socialists argue that racism is integral to the capitalist system so that ending racism means overturning capitalism and fighting for socialism? This episode of Socialism looks at Black Lives Matter. You can't have capitalism without racism. We're here this episode with Hannah Sell, who's the General Secretary of the Socialist Party. Hello, Hannah. Hi, James. And we're going to be discussing this magnificent mass movement, which has exploded first in the US, but across the planet, including in Britain, on the issue immediately of anti-racism, but bringing in all sorts of other sources of anger as well. So the first question we'd like to ask is, what is the significance of this Black Lives Matter movement that has erupted? Well, I mean, as you've said, it's fantastic. That's the first thing. Mm. It's a gigantic movement. It's not the first global movement we've seen in recent years. We've seen previous waves of Black Lives Matter protests spread across the world. But we've also seen the women's marches after Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. And at that stage, they were the biggest ever simultaneous worldwide demonstrations. But we've also seen the environment protests, young people protesting against climate change. And they've all been very important movements. But this is on a different scale. And that is, first of all, its broader reach. It is literally bigger. I mean, if you look in the US, I think there were 650 women's marches took place on the same day. There have been thousands of Black Lives Matter marches. And obviously, in the big cities with large black populations, but not only. Also in little towns, you know, protests have taken place, including in towns in the South where white supremacist activity is still normal. Mm. Black Lives Matter protests have happened. Even the Financial Times noticed it. They said this movement is about both race and class. Mm -hmm. And they pointed out the central issues that people are protesting on, of course, are racism and police violence. But many of the issues, like increased spending on education, better social welfare, are issues which are vital for black workers, but also for other sections of the working class as well. And that's, you know, more than previous movements against racism in the US. Of course, it's young black people that are in the leadership and at the centre, but there are also white, Hispanic, Asian, young people from every background taking part in the protests. They're enormously heroic especially in the US, they've faced massive police brutality. The last article I saw that had figures said there'd been more than 10,000 people arrested on the demonstrations. Wow. And yet that hasn't stopped them. They've continued. So all of that is very significant. So is the popular support for them, which you perhaps wouldn't expect, given the way that hostility is being whipped up against them, of course, by Trump and by the right generally. But 74% of Americans in opinion polls say they support the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. And it is a similar picture globally. I mean, obviously, we're here in Britain. It has been 
extremely noticeable, the working class character of the demonstrations in Britain. It's almost just like the country's council estates have turned out to the city centres, yeah. taken to the streets and marched. And again, on a very multi-ethnic basis, it's extremely impressive. And again, it has taken place mainly in the big cities, but also in smaller and predominantly white communities and again have overwhelming popular support so all of those things make this a very significant movement and those of us in the socialist party you've been out on these fantastic demonstrations in britain we've all experienced that the extraordinarily working class character of them really useful really energetic and in fact in almost every case we've been the only organized political force present on those demonstrations you're right about the popular support as well. I remember during the last peak of Black Lives Matter protests, 2014 to 2016, that kind of time, there was support from passers-by who would take leaflets and toot their horns, but it's on a different scale this time around. Everyone was tooting their horns in central London on the demonstrations which we were on. So looking back at that previous upsurge in around 2014 to 2016, that didn't last and yeah. now it's come back onto the scene so i think a lot of people will be asking black people have been murdered by the police consistently in between why is it happening now yeah and it's a very good question because obviously the immediate trigger is the brutal state lynching of george floyd but as you say criminally that is not uncommon mm. and it's not even uncommon that it's caught on camera so that alone doesn't explain why now this wave of protests has taken place. In our opinion, the immediate kindling for the explosion that's happened are the effects of the COVID crisis, which has kind of laid bare the rotten character of 21st century capitalism, has driven people into poverty. It's the working class that has suffered the most, but has also shown the high levels of racism that exist for capitalism today. Excuse me, that was my phone and I'm now putting it on <laughs> silent. <laughs> so, uh, if you look at what's happened in the US and in Britain with the COVID crisis, deaths have disproportionately been amongst black and Asian workers. Mm. The British government, as we all know, was forced to write a report about it, and, well, to publish a report about it, but they refused to publish the conclusions, which <laughs> did more than give the statistics, which we all know that you're four times more likely to die from COVID if you're from a BAME background. And at the same time, there's been a huge increase in unemployment. And again, it's the poorest sections of the working class and particularly workers from black and Asian backgrounds that are losing their jobs in the COVID crisis. I mean, actually, horrifically, George Floyd himself summed all of that up mm. because he had the virus and he'd lost his job as a result of the virus before he was murdered by the police. But, you know, that's the experience of millions and millions of people. And at the same time... The pandemic didn't come after a period of prosperity, so it's not like everything was rosy mm. before the crisis developed. On the contrary, it came after a decade of austerity, of belt tightening. The previous economic crisis, the working class was made to pay for it mm. in cuts in public services, in pay restraint. In the US, the jobs market had largely recovered, but just like here, the jobs that people had were low-paid, insecure, and so on. And so the young people out on those protests 
have grown up in an era of austerity. They have only known their parents suffering pay restraint. They've only known having a very insecure future themselves. Right-wing governments have obviously had an effect, the kind of whip of counter-revolution, when you've got Johnson and even worse, Trump. Mm. Blatant racism being whipped up in order to try and maintain a social base for their governments. That is a factor in the movement. But it's very striking that nobody thinks it's just a question of getting rid of this one particularly reactionary politician Mm. and that's going to fix the situation. And we have to remember particularly the US experience because what I've just talked about, the decade of austerity, the era these young people have grown up in, a lot of that was under a black president, the first black (laughs) president of the US. And there were still over a 1,000 police killings. Poverty increased. I mean, killings by the police, not killings of the police, I guess, for clarity. (laughs) Poverty increased, especially amongst black workers. To give an example, the economic crisis in 2007-2008 and Obama's response to that allowed a situation where there were massive foreclosures in the US. So people just lost their homes. They were Mm. kicked out on the coals. They just had to put the keys back through the estate agents' doors and leave and live in their cars. That massively disproportionately affected black workers. There was an over 20% fall in black home ownership. And it hasn't recovered. It's still back now, today at the level that it was in the 1960s, as a result of the last recession, before we headed into a situation where now in the US there's 40 million unemployed, a higher level than at the peak of the Great Depression. So all of that has fed this movement erupting now. And I think it also means that on these protests, there is quite a deep-seated feeling that fundamental structural change is needed, Mm. that this is about the system. It's not just about racist individuals or a few bad apples and all of the other kind of cliches that are used. And people understand that racism is very deep-rooted in society. I mean, in Britain the felling of the Edward Colston statue the was an example. Exactly, yeah. yes. Who, his statue's been there since the end of the 19th century and the local mayor, a Labour, allegedly Corbynite mayor... And a black mayor. And a black mayor had failed to even get a plaque on it pointing out that approximately 19,000 African men, women and children had died at the hands of Edward Colston, yeah. who, you know, was a slave trader. That's what he did. But the statue remained until the local population chucked him in the docks where he belonged. (laughs) And that's had huge popular support in Bristol. People support that taking place. They understand what he represented. But of course, a statue is only a symbol, and much more than that is needed. We need societal change. Again, on the protests, the placards that we've produced, the posters that say you can't have capitalism without racism, which was Malcolm X's conclusion, they're snatched out of our hands. People are desperate for them. Mm. That sums up the mood of a big section, of course not all, but a big section of the demonstrators. I noticed in the Guardian newspaper a couple of days ago, they had photo captions for the demonstrations. They're pictures of the demos, and one of them said that an ever-present conflict on the demos was socialism versus capitalism. Mm. I don't think it was a conflict, but it was an endless point of discussion on the demonstrations. Can capitalism be reformed? Because no one thinks it's good like it is at the moment. Mm. Or do we need a different socialist system? 
So you mentioned Malcolm X, the famous black liberation fighter and revolutionary, and the line of his, which the Socialist Party uses all the time in situations like this, you can't have capitalism without racism. Why do we think Malcolm X was right to say that? At the moment, it might superficially seem like that's not true. And the reason I say that is because so many big corporations are falling over themselves <laughs> to say how they support Black Lives Matter. Mm. I mean, it made me laugh. The particularly British example of this was PG Tips and Yorkshire Tea having a Twitter fight <laughs> about who was most desperate to stop racists drinking their tea. <laughs> um, and look, obviously, capitalists are there to make profits, and it's a sign of the popularity of the struggle that they know they're going to sell more tea if they claim that they support the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's primarily what's motivating them. And that's what's motivating Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, who's made a few more billion during the COVID crisis, that he's saying he supports the Black Lives Matter movement. Or Lloyds of London, the big insurance firm, exactly. saying it's going to make reparations and pay money over to black charities. Yeah, etc., etc. The demonstrators largely understand that it doesn't mean anything, really. That, to take Jeff Bezos as one example, and you could use a million of them, 65% of the extremely low-paid, super-exploited, not allowed to join a union, sacked for joining a union, members of his workforce are from black, Asian, ethnic minority <laughs> backgrounds. He can claim not to be racist, but he is profiting from a racist system. Mm. And that's the thing. Actually, regardless of the intentions of individual capitalists, and maybe some of them are sincere, I'm not, I've got no way of measuring that, capitalism is a profoundly racist system, and it has been right back to its inception. Karl Marx, the founder of scientific socialism, famously said that capitalism came into being dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. And he was primarily talking about the transatlantic slave trade because that created the material basis for the development of capitalism. British capitalism is not just Bristol. The whole of British capitalism, which was the first major capitalist power in the world, accumulated its wealth as a result of the slave trade. And now everyone's saying, oh, well, of course, we think it's a bad thing that that statue was there at the Edward Colston statue. And we might get rid of this other statue and that other statue. Mm. But let's be clear, statues are only symbols, but there's a limit to how far British capitalism will go with symbols. Mm. Because the mass enslavement of African men, women and children is so deeply ingrained in the foundations of British capitalism that the whole heroic history which we are taught to justify the existence of British capitalism has got people involved in the slave trade deeply enmeshed into it. Mm. They can't possibly get rid of them all. It would undermine their own narrative too much. I mean, the monarchy, mm. the Church of England... Most of the major banks that still exist today, Barclays, HSBC, Lloyds, they were all up to their necks in the slave trade. So actually it's not possible for them to take down all the statues of people who were guilty in the slave trade. And I think we've got to be aware, capitalism's a global system, and it has been since its inception, but it's based on nation states, and it's still based on nation states today. 
And because the first capitalist countries to come into existence were in Europe and then in the US and in different ways were all involved in the slave trade, by the way, mm. but then also went on to dominate and exploit the rest of the world as British imperialism did, then every national capitalist class has to have... It relies on a deeply ingrained national consciousness to justify its existence. That, you know, we're the British people and we have this proud record. And that proud record is of exploiting the rest of the planet. So it's a kind of mythology. It's a mythology and it's a racist mythology. It Mm. cannot be otherwise. They can't separate racism from their history, first of the slave trade and then of British imperialism. With the slave trade came a whole, a huge edifice of racist mythology, ideology to justify what they were doing. They had to say, black people are not the same as us, they're less than human, etc., to justify the fact that they were treating them like worse than animals in what they did in the slave trade. And then it continued with justifying imperialism. Mm. I mean, there's been a kind of hoo-ha because people wrote... Churchill was a racist on the bottom of the statue to him. (laughs) But, you know, Google things that Churchill said. There is no question. He he justified British imperialism completely. He described other peoples around the world as primitive, as the subject races. They're the polite quotes. I mean, I could say a lot more. And it's not just what he said, it's what he did as Mm. well in terms of brutal slaughter. But the point is... His views are not exceptional. Mm. They were the absolute norm. The position of the British capitalist class that they used to justify the conquest of the rest of the world. The US obviously has its own history. It's not the same as Britain, but it's just as racist. Mm. Because, of course, it was founded on the plantations, Mm. on mass slavery of Africans. And yes, you had the development of the US Civil War and, you know, the developing northern industrial capitalists came into conflict with the South. But let's be clear, it wasn't Lincoln's intention to free the slaves initially. This was about defending their profits and industrial capitalism in the North. And it was only when they were losing and they were coming under support because of the demands from the population in the North to free the slaves, then he made the announcement of freeing the slaves. And, of course, the slaves left the plantations, massively weakening the economic situation of the South and largely came to fight for the North. And they claimed the land as they went. They carried out that act themselves. So it was that movement by them that led to the ending of the slave trade. And in the aftermath of the Civil War, There were 40 years that were known as the period of the Reconstruction with the slogan of 40 acres and a mule where poor whites and poor blacks came together and fought to build a society where they had decent rights, they had their own land and so on. And the northern capitalists allowed it because they wanted to make sure the plantation owners were thoroughly weakened. Mm. But as soon as their rule was consolidated, you had Jim Crow, the Ku Klux Klan, brutal repression of the black population in the South as they consolidated their rule. And the whole history since then of the development of a US capitalism based on a greater degree of segregation than exists even today than in a country like Britain and absolutely brutal racism. So, you know, it's not the same as Britain, but both countries are founded on a racist ideology and they have not overcome that today. But surely that 
crude, vicious, open, explicit racism of the past, that doesn't apply today. A lot of people will still see a big difference, big improvements in social attitudes. Isn't that the case? Yes, look, there's been massive improvements in social attitudes and we want to look at why. Because people have fought back. That's the reason. Why is there no longer direct colonial rule of most of the world? Because the people of the countries of Africa, of Asia, of Latin America rose up and said no. And there was a revolutionary wave that took place as they fought for independence, mass movements against racism, the civil rights movement in the US, movements here in Britain as well, some of which our party have been involved in leading. They have fought back against racism and changed attitudes. So have united struggles of the working class from different ethnic backgrounds coming together to fight against the exploiters. So blatant racism doesn't exist in the way that it did in the past because the capitalist class have been forced to adapt by the movements from below. They want to sell tea or anything else. (laughs) They have to be less blatantly racist. But racism today is still a vital part of how capitalism operates. That hasn't gone away. First of all, there's not direct colonial rule, but there is still super exploitation of most of the rest of the world. Around the time capitalism came into existence, the gap between the richest and poorest countries in the world was something like five to one. Today it's 400 to one. You have to justify that. You have to justify that the whole of sub-Saharan Africa has a GDP that in real terms is a fifth of just the US. When obviously it's got huge natural resources, enormously talented people, it's not something innate, and it's justified by racism. Mm. I don't mean it's as crude as Churchill would have been, but it's, well, they have dictatorships, they're corrupt, they're not really able, they haven't yet developed proper democracy. It's all of that racist, frankly, propaganda to justify the continued super-exploitation of those countries by the major multinational corporations and the imperialist powers. And that's what lies behind the poverty, the fact that capitalism is incapable of fully developing Africa or come to that most of the world. So they still use it from that point of view, and they also use it inside the major capitalist powers. They use it here in Britain. It's a vital means of dividing working-class people between ourselves. The capitalist class are a tiny minority. I mean, a tinier minority now than they've ever been. 85 people own as much wealth as the poorest half of the world's population. Mm. To stay in power, they have to make sure that we're not united against them. (laughs) And they'll use whatever means they can, whether it's conflict between private and public sector workers, workers who work for agencies and workers who have permanent contracts, young and old, men and women... But look back in Britain at the last 20 years. What has been the most effective way? It's the idea of migration, Mm. that workers from other countries are taking white workers' jobs, that lie, that idea, that it is the fault, not of the bosses who are not paying enough, but of the workers who are being paid peanuts who come from another country, that wages are being held down. That racist, dividing workers amongst themselves has been a central plank of how capitalism has operated in the last period. And using, you know, it's not always posed in racist terms, but 
employers will say, aren't we doing a marvellous job? We're helping these workers who've just arrived from these very poor countries by giving them jobs mm. and therefore justifying paying them nothing yeah. instead of paying them the going rate. So divide and rule and racism is also an important part of how the capitalist class remain in power. And even while social attitudes have improved, that is also getting worse. And why is it getting worse? Because capitalism's a system in crisis. Capitalism means austerity, mass unemployment with the crisis that is now developing. So capitalist politicians, in order to get elected, have to whip up populist ideas. You know, lots of major capitalists will berate Trump because he's a racist, because he's out of control, and they don't like him. But they would far rather have him in power because he defends the capitalist system mm. than Bernie Sanders, mm. the left who tried to stand for the leadership of the Democratic Party here in Britain. The Financial Times, which is as close as you get to the mouthpiece of the capitalist class in Britain, really don't like Boris Johnson. <laughs> but they called for a vote for him in the last general election. Yeah. Why? Because it was a choice between him and Jeremy Corbyn. And they don't want any kind of socialist, anybody who says they're going to stand up for the working class in power. If the only way you can get a capitalist elected is by having someone who's a populist who whips up racism, then they are quite prepared to go along with that. So, you know, those things are getting worse, even while social attitudes have generally improved. Now, that doesn't mean we can't win victories. Absolutely, you can win victories in the struggle against racism. We can win further legal changes, get statues removed, win further improvements in social attitudes, taking to the streets, demonstrating, mobilising a powerful mass movement can win victories. But there are real limits to that while we still have capitalism. Even the US after the civil rights movement, and to some extent British capitalism, but they didn't have as much money, so they didn't do it as effectively, consciously set out to develop a black elite. And they did it because they wanted to give working class black Americans a stake to be part of the American dream, to try and stop them revolting in the future. Mm -hmm. And there is, it's tiny, but there is a black elite. And there's a bigger, was part of it. Exactly. And there's a bigger black middle class than there would have been in the past. But that middle class in this economic crisis is going to shrink again. I saw statistics just yesterday that in the US between February and April, 3.3 million businesses, 22% of businesses went bust. Overwhelmingly, they're not the big businesses, mm. they're the middle class, they're small businesses. But amongst black business owners, the decline was 41%. Wow. So in other words, in addition to the greater impoverishment of the working class, some of the people who have managed to claw their way up to a slightly higher social strata are going to be forced back into the poorest layers because of the crisis of capitalism. So, yeah, it's different today than it was in the past. But capitalism is a system in crisis and racism is still in its DNA and part of how it fights to remain in power and leads to the oppression of black and Asian people. So... It's in the very foundations of the development of capitalism. It still operates viciously today. And, you know, probably black people who are facing murder at the hands of the police might not agree that actually the crude racism yeah. of the past has disappeared. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and rightly so. But on the basis of all of this, that the system needed it to develop and still needs it to maintain its rule, it was on that basis that Malcolm X ultimately drew the conclusion you can't have capitalism without racism. What conclusions can the current generation 
fighting against injustice draw from previous struggles? I mean, loads, and more than we're going to have time to talk about in this podcast today. Particularly, I just want to focus on the civil rights movement in the US, because it was a gigantic magnificent movement that won victories, absolutely not getting rid of crude racism, but pushing it back from where it was. And huge lessons were learned in the course of that struggle. So if you look to the early stages of it, the first wave was kind of pleading with politicians to change things. But then you had the development of mass protests. And I suppose Martin Luther King Jr. would kind of summarise that phase of the protest because he led and others led massive demonstrations, but it was the idea that they had to be peaceful and that they would succeed by really pressurising the Democrats and the establishment Mm. to change things. But they learn on the basis of experience. By the way, including Martin Luther King, Mm. he learned on the basis of experience. He drew the conclusions that they'd won legal change, but they needed economic change, and that the force they should unite with to get that was the white working class. When he was killed, he was out supporting a strike that was taking place. He drew the conclusion that maybe the US needs to move towards democratic socialism. That's how he put it. But others went further in the lessons that they learnt. One of the things that came up is this being peaceful doesn't work. They don't listen to us. And therefore, rioting, you know, more violent protests might be a way forward. And I'm raising that because that is definitely not the mood in the protests at the moment. Mm. On the contrary, in the face of vicious police provocation, demonstrations have remained overwhelmingly peaceful in Britain and in the US in the face on occasions of far-right provocation. I mean, the response last weekend to really quite small numbers of people demonstrating to support the statues, and Johnson had whipped that up, that the Black Lives Matter protests were going to take down every statue and completely made it up and so on. But there were many far-right people out, not many, many as a proportion of the demos, the demos were little, out on those demonstrations. But the response of the Black Lives Matter movement, in London anyway, was to say, we're not turning out today, we'll stay away. And those that did go took their pronounced declaration of their peacefulness to the extent of rescuing unconscious, which, you know, was a heroic act, white, probably far-right protesters that were lying unconscious on the pavement. So that's the mood at the moment. Mm. But I'm raising this point because that can change. People can get frustrated if nothing happens. If not enough happens, facing mass unemployment, as we're going to face, it's nearly 3 million now in Britain, 40 million, as I said, in the US... You can see people thinking, we've got no choice but to riot. And that was a phase in the struggle last time around in the 60s as well. Of course, that's entirely understandable. But being understandable doesn't mean it offers a way forward. Because actually, what it showed is it made it easier for the capitalist class to divide and marginalise the movement, to undermine some of its support. I don't just mean amongst the white population, but amongst other older sections of the black population as well. Mm. And in many cases, it was destroying your own community, which, of course, doesn't you know, take things forward. But having said that, that doesn't mean that Martin Luther King's approach is the right approach either. <laughs> Actually, right. last weekend, what would have been better was to say, we are turning out en masse and the demonstration would have dwarfed, you know, a hundred times over anything that the far right could have mobilised. And we are going to have, yes, a peaceful demonstration, 
but an organised and stewarded demonstration which will defend itself against attack, whether that's from the police or from the far right, and will march in an organised way. But that requires organisation, but that would have been the most effective means to counter what the far right were doing. And actually, there was moves in that direction. On the Friday protest, I think you were on it, actually, James, but any Socialist Party members were on it. They reported they were worried about the far right, the protest, and so they spontaneously said, can all of those able to steward come to the front, Mm. link arms around the demonstration and so on? So those kind of methods are beginning to develop this time around as well. But that conclusion about the need to be organised also came up in the US alongside the need to fight for a different kind of society. And these are the final points that I want to make. Because we quote Malcolm X, that you can't have capitalism without racism, and he drew those conclusions, and he also drew the conclusions at the end of his life that you had to unite with anyone who wanted to fight against capitalism, and that meant working-class people of every colour in order to achieve that, which was a big change from his approach earlier on. Very big change, But... Really, the high point of the civil rights movement were the Black Panthers, who came after Malcolm X. And they drew those conclusions that you needed to fight for a different kind of society on the basis of class solidarity. Fred Hampton, for example, one of the leading Black Panthers, killed by the police when he was 21, he said, you don't fight racism with racism, you fight racism with solidarity. You don't fight capitalism with black capitalism. You fight capitalism with socialism. That's a quote we often use, but honestly, there are reams of quotes from the Black Panthers Mm. along the same lines. George Jackson says how in prison he met Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, Engels and Mao. The Maoism wasn't as good, but nonetheless, (laughs) uh, that's not from him, that's my interjection, when he entered prison and they redeemed him. You know, they read... Marxists, they studied and they drew conclusion. Bobby Seale said, those who want to obscure the struggle with ethnic differences are the ones who are aiding and maintaining the exploitation of the masses. We need unity to defeat the boss class. Every strike shows that. Every workers' organisation banner declares unity is strength. And they were the lessons learned at the high point of the civil rights movement. The Black Panthers grew phenomenally, massively. They were selling 125,000 of their paper every week at their peak a year after they'd been founded. Mm. They were smashed by the state in reality and, you know, didn't have the opportunity to fully put into practice some of their ideas, particularly in terms of reaching out to other sections of the working class and organising a united struggle. But actually, this generation today, in some ways... That task is more obvious and easier to achieve than it was then. One of the things that Huey P. Newton said when he was looking back afterwards was basically the problem they had is that the white radicals didn't have a base in the white working class. So Mm -hmm. linking up with them didn't help them too much. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's different today. The Socialist Party, for example, and our sister organisations around the world, we're not mass organisations, but we have real roots in the working class and have been able on union executives, for example, to be the ones fighting for support for the Black Lives Matter protests, putting forward our programme and so on. But more broadly, the white working class is much less far behind than 
it was in the US in the 1960s. Mm. It is more angry, more radicalised, because capitalism is so clearly not able to offer it a future either. And that's why the demonstrations are much more multi-ethnic than would have been the case in the 1960s, because there's a much bigger section of white young people who can see why they should be out on the streets as well. So from that point of view, the movement is starting on a higher basis. Now, the young people discussing and debating ideas at the moment haven't yet drawn all the conclusions that the Black Panthers drew, but many of them will consider themselves socialists. Mm. The vast majority in Britain who were able to vote in the last election will have voted for Jeremy Corbyn, mm-hmm. thinking that he was a socialist, and will also now be thinking, well, OK, he was a socialist, but having one socialist at the top of a capitalist party didn't really help us, did it? Because no. now we've got Keir Starmer in charge, who offers no way forward whatsoever, and the idea that the working class needs its own party flows from that and will begin to be discussed. The other thing that comes from it is Jeremy Corbyn put forward some good ideas, some nationalisation of bits of industry, but that's not enough. Mm. We need fundamental change. And that means nationalising all of the major corporations and banks that dominate the economy in order to be able to take that vast wealth, power, industry, infrastructure into the hands of the working class majority to democratically run it ourselves. And then you could give everyone a decent house to live in, give every kid free school meals, give every kid's parents enough money that they could afford to feed their children outside of term time, have everyone able to retire at an age where they could still enjoy life, free education for all, all the other basic things that the people involved in this movement are fighting for, and linked to that, begin to eliminate racism, which is intrinsically linked to capitalism. So that need for fundamental change is something people were beginning to be thinking about. I think we can't really say how long this phase of the struggle is going to last. Because at the moment it's not organised. It was largely a spontaneous uprising. Mm. That doesn't mean it could continue for a whole period. The Yellow Vests in France were a spontaneous uprising and they're still going, (laughs) what, 18 months later? But on the other hand, this phase may not continue for that long. But whether or not it does, it's the start of a movement. It's the start of a new generation looking for an alternative. And they are already broadly anti-capitalist. Many of them are looking for socialist ideas. Capitalism is a system in profound crisis. And I think we conclude they will learn the lessons of the US civil rights movement. But this generation really can be the generation that stand on the shoulders of giants, that succeed where the fantastic struggles led by Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, did not succeed in transforming society, but developing the ideas that they were searching for, this generation can succeed in building a new socialist world. Thanks very much, Hannah. As always, if you like what you hear, recommend us to your co-workers and friends, donate to help fund us, and if you agree, join the socialists. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Hannah Sell, speaking to James Ivans, and I'm Helen Patterson. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. 
Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside of England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity. Solidarity.